Uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Uh, once again, that's Matthew chapter 5. There have been some rather strange occurrences, uh, or rather coincidences, that have occurred throughout history. Uh, take, for instance, the incredibly odd case of the unsinkable Hugh Williams. As the story goes, on December 5, 1664, a ship sank in the Menai Strait off the coast of Wales. All 81 passengers died, save for one man, a man by the name of Hugh Williams. 221 years later, to the day, December 5, 1785, another ship sinks in the Menai Strait off the coast of Wales. This time, 60 people drowned, everyone on board, save for one man whose name just so happened to be Hugh Williams. 35 years later, this time on August 5th, though some accounts like to embellish and say it took place on December 5th, August 5th, 1820, a ship sinks in the Menai Strait, 25 people are killed, there's only one survivor, and what was his name? You guessed it, Hugh Williams. Now, this coincidence is perhaps not so strange as you may think. Hugh Williams was apparently a fairly common name amongst the Welsh at this point in time. You might think of it as something similar to two survivors named Robert Johnson or Michael Smith. Uh, further, the Menai Strait is an apparently uh, nasty stretch of sea, and shipwrecks there weren't entirely uncommon, so it might be closer to three different Robert Johnsons dying in a car accident on a dangerous stretch of highway on the same day over the course of 200 years. It's not unfathomable, but still, that's a pretty interesting coincidence. It always makes me think of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, when he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for following in the footsteps of their fathers and persecuting the prophets, saying, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. People like to sometimes jump on this passage as proof to the fact that the Bible contains errors, since the prophet who wrote the book of Zechariah, who is called Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo in Zechariah 1.1, he appears to be different from the Zechariah that's killed between the sanctuary and the altar in 2 Chronicles 24, who is called Zechariah the son of Jehoiada. Uh, there's no record of the prophet Zechariah dying in this way. And so people will say, clearly this is an error on Jesus' part. He didn't know which Zechariah died between the sanctuary and the altar, to which I say, have you ever heard of Hugh Williams? This is not exactly unprecedented for two different events to occur in nearly identical ways, and most especially when you're dealing with names as common as a Hugh Williams in Wales or Zechariah in Israel. I think you'll find it's more common than you might think. In fact, did you know that in Jewish history, there's even one specific day that seems to be particularly marked as a day of tragedy? That day is the 9th of Av. 
The Jewish calendar, in case you aren't aware, functions differently from the Gregorian calendar that you and I operate on, which is a solar calendar. Theirs is a lunar calendar, meaning the year is marked by the cycles of the moon, not the position of the sun. Well, under this calendar, the 11th month of the year, which typically falls sometime around July and August on our calendar, is called the month of Av. And according to their historical tradition, the 9th of Av have served as a particularly ominous day for the Jewish nation. For example, did you know that both the first and the second temples were destroyed on the 9th of Av? The Bible says the first temple's destruction began on the 7th of Av and continued through the 10th. The Talmud notes that the destruction of the temple structure itself began on the 9th of Av. The Talmud also notes that the Romans set fire to the second temple on the 9th of Av and that it burned until the 10th of Av. Though the final figures are disputed today, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus claims that approximately one million Jews were killed during the extent of that siege. Thousands would die in the temple's flames as it burned, and at least 97,000 were captured and enslaved after its destruction. Already you, you can see why the Jews would see the ninth of Av as a particularly dark day in Jewish history. And yet it gets worse. According to the Mishnah, the 12 spies sent to perform reconnaissance on the land of Canaan in the book of Numbers they returned on the 9th of Av and issued their bad report, leading to Israel's 40-year exile in the wilderness. The Mishnah further states that the Bar Kokhba revolt, which occurred between the years 132 and 136 A.D., and which resulted in a more severe backlash against the Jews than what happened after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that revolt was finally crushed with the fall of the city of Batar on the 9th of Av in the year 135. Over 500,000 Jews are said to have died in the course of that revolt. The temple grounds were also plowed over in its aftermath. The Torah was outlawed and symbolically burned on the temple mount. Where the temple once stood, Emperor Hadrian erected statues of both himself and Jupiter. And after renaming Jerusalem, he forbid any Jew from entering the city, except for on one day out of the year, the ninth of Av. And the list actually goes on. There are several other historical calamities that fell upon the Jewish people, not on the ninth of Av, but in the weeks before and after this date. And so for this reason, the Jewish tend to commemorate this day on their calendar, not as a day of celebration, but as a day of national lament and mourning. Actually, the three weeks leading up to the ninth of Av, which is also known as Tisha B'Av, are a time of national mourning similar to what Lent is on the Christian calendar. And on the day of Tisha B'Av itself, observing Jews will not eat or drink. They will not wash or bathe. They don't apply any creams or oils. They won't wear leather shoes. They won't engage in sexual relations. Since to do any of this, to do anything that would appear to be happy or joyful on this day, would be out of step with everything that's happened to the Jewish people on this fateful day throughout history. It's really a fascinating holiday for us to consider as Christians, and most especially, I think, considering how its meaning has evolved over the years. You see, some Jews have observed 
that Tisha B'Av doesn't seem to be as big of a deal in the Jewish community as it used to be. Uh, the reason for this shift seems to be because as more and more uh, modern generations reflect on the suffering of the Jewish people, they think not of the destruction of the temples and the exiles that followed, but of the great holocaust of World War II. And the result is that more and more Tisha B'Av is taking on a bit of a positive spin. It's seen less as a day of mourning and more of a day as a day of anticipation. In fact, in some Jewish sects, it's even believed that the Messiah will be born on Tisha B'Av. I think this is a holiday we can identify with as Christians. Of course, only a fraction of the church is Hebrew. In fact, I don't think that anyone in this particular congregation shares that ancestry. So I don't think we can participate in this holiday as if we were Jewish, as if these tragedies happened to us. And yet I think we can, along with the Apostle Paul, recognize that the Jews are still, in a sense, a unique sense, God's people. Quote, to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, Romans 9, 4. I think we can, along with them, reflect upon their discipline, their exile, and anticipate the restor their restoration at the coming of the Messiah when He establishes the kingdom of God. Of course, we mean it differently than them. They look simply for His first coming, believing themselves to be repentant of their sin. We, however, understand that they're still in disobedience and the rejection of the Christ, and that it's only after their repentance that He will return to establish justice over the earth. But regardless of that disagreement, we can both anticipate the day when the Messiah returns to rule over Israel, since it is a day that will indeed usher in an age of prosperity and peace for all the peoples, including even the Gentiles. In fact, even more than this, while we as Christians may not share the ninth of Av as a peculiarly tragic day along with the Jews, at the same time, there's a sense in which we too know what it's like to live in exile, do we not? We too have suffered persecution at the hands of the wicked throughout history, and so we too can look forward to the day of their destruction when God's people will suffer no more. And it's with this in mind I'd like to start a new tradition here at Cornerstone. And that's to set aside the first Sunday in August, which is a day that kind of approximates the 9th of Av as a day of both anticipation and lament, as we reflect upon the suffering of God's people across the planet, both Jew and Gentile, and come to Him in humility and prayer, asking Him to put an end to their suffering, asking Him even to usher in the end of the age with the return of Christ. I think the first Sunday in August is a good Sunday to do this, even in the Christian tradition. Uh, you probably don't know this, but Christians have celebrated a feast known as the Feast of Transfiguration on, on August 6th uh, for centuries. The Feast of Transfiguration, as you might imagine, remembers Jesus' transfiguration, which was an event that pulled back the veil, so to speak, and displayed the glory that Christ will exhibit at His return. So this is really a great Sunday for us to think about the return of Christ and the suffering that we experience here until that return. And in the future, I'd like, to, like us to spend some time on this Sunday praying for Israel's repentance, praying for the persecuted church, uh, praying even for the return of Christ. I have some plans on how I'd like us to celebrate this event, which will hopefully be in place by next year. 
But for this year, we're simply going to turn our attention to a text that talks about how God wants us to think about the persecution we sometimes endure as God's people. And that text is Matthew 5, 10 to 12. I think you all probably know by now that I'm not, I'm not one to rush to the big P word. I'm very reluctant to start claiming persecution. I think that most of us as Western Christians really don't have a clue about what real persecution actually looks like. We really just enjoy a phenomenal amount of religious liberty, and if anything, I think it probably makes us a bit spoiled. We're not used to any kind of suffering for our faith, and that actually makes us extremely sensitive to it. We haven't developed any evangelistic calluses, you might say. We're not used to the hard work that the church has had to endure in order to proclaim Christ throughout the centuries. That said, I also think we're beginning to see some disturbing signs of what might be on the horizon for the church. I referred to one of these instances just a few weeks ago in Sunday school. In California, Governor Newsom attempted to ban singing in churches uh, just this past month while at the same time continuing to encourage the protests that have been taking place across the state of California. Governor Cuomo of New York, Mayor de Blasio of New York City, they tried to do a similar thing a few weeks earlier before the courts overturned their orders. In the past couple of weeks, the Supreme Court upheld a Nevada law limiting casinos to 50% capacity while limiting churches to 50 people regardless of building capacity. There appears to be a kind of accepted discrimination developing in our society, wherein the state increasingly feels at liberty to tell the church how it is to worship. Again, we've talked about this in Sunday school. This is why we've been talking about the church in Sunday school, to be able to discern how to respond to these events as they transpire. And what we've seen from that study is that this is a clear example of government overreach. Biblically speaking, the state is not empowered to tell the church how it is to worship God. It is authorized by God to punish evil. It possesses the power of the sword, but the power of the keys, the power to tell God's people how they are to worship God, that belongs to the church. And of course, as a part of that discussion, we talked about how we're to act when this overreach happens. We said that we're to pray for our leaders. We're to advocate for justice. We're to try to inform our rulers of their responsibility before God and attempt to persuade them to change their minds. In some instances, we are even to disobey our government when it's warranted. That doesn't mean we necessarily lift our hand against the state. It doesn't mean we're disrespectful to our rulers. Instead, we simply inform them we're going to obey God, not you, and then deal with the consequences. But all this being said, how are we to think about this overreach when it happens? Meaning, say we're we're forced to go the civil disobedience route as Grace Community Church in Los Angeles was forced to go this past week. What happens if the authorities show up and start making arrests, or issue fines for simply doing what God commands us to do. How are we to think when that kind of persecution starts to break out? 
This is a question I'd like us to explore this morning from Matthew 5, 10 through 12. We're going, to, we're going to begin by reading this passage together in its context, starting in verse 3 and continuing through verse 12. Uh, this is a section of Scripture known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes serve as the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus describes the characteristics possessed by those who will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a list that is intentionally designed to shock the audience. In each statement, Jesus says, Blessed are, before going on to describe someone who we would tend to think is the exact opposite of someone who's blessed. And in the very last beatitude in this list, which is our subject for today, Jesus issues perhaps the most shocking beatitude of all, and that is, Blessed are the persecuted. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. Once again, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, focusing in on verses 10 through 12. Jesus says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you were to describe those who are truly the most fortunate in life, do you ever in a million years think that you would come up with this word on your list? Persecuted. Absolutely nobody thinks this. There's seemingly nothing good. That can, that can come from being persecuted, especially being persecuted for righteousness' sake, as Jesus says here. This is injustice to suffer for righteousness' sake. How is it ever good to be a victim of injustice? Who would ever think, you know, I really hope I get punished for something I didn't do? Or even, no, wait, I really hope I get punished for something I did right. This is about the worst thing that can happen. To do all the hard things that come with doing what's right and then get punished for it. It's the last thing that we'd ever wish upon ourselves. And it would have been no different for the Jews in Jesus' day. The blessed in their eyes were the rich and the powerful. In fact, they believed that wealth and popularity were even rewards for godliness. In their eyes, God blessed the, righteousness, uh, the righteous by giving them the good life. Even truly God-fearing Jews weren't immune from the system of thought. That's why the disciples asked Jesus regarding the blind man in John 9, 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And it's why Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19, 23, and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then Matthew says that the disciples were greatly astonished and proclaimed, Who then can be saved? Everyone believed 
that the godly were blessed by God with ease and comfort as their reward. So, of course, the blind man must have sinned, or his parents must have sinned for him to have been born this way. And surely a rich young ruler of all people was going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says this, therefore, that the persecuted are going to possess the kingdom of heaven, it isn't just a challenge to the Jews' expectation of blessing, but even their expectation of righteousness. Surely it's inconceivable that persecution is in any way associated with righteousness. The righteous aren't persecuted. They're blessed by God for their righteousness. And the way they're blessed by God is by God giving them every good thing. The persecuted are those who've been crushed by God for their unrighteousness, which is why they've had everything taken away from them. So surely the persecuted are the least among us. I mean, there's simply nothing good that can come out of persecution, right? Yet Jesus says that we've got it completely wrong. He says that the persecuted are the blessed among us. He says that they should even rejoice over their persecution. In fact, Jesus even points out that their persecution is a sign of their righteousness. The reason that they suffer is for righteousness' sake. How absolutely bizarre this is. I mean, isn't righteousness a good thing? Shouldn't it be received as something admirable by those around it? Shouldn't we expect the righteous to be praised? And further, who would ever rejoice over persecution, especially persecution over injustice? Isn't this so obviously a cause for regret and sorrow? In these verses, Jesus provides two reasons why we should rejoice in the face of persecution. Both reasons are found in verse 12. First, he says we should rejoice over persecution because it means that we'll receive a rich reward in heaven. He says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Second, he says that we should rejoice over persecution because it means that we're among the godly remnant that God has preserved throughout history. This is found in the second half of verse 12. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning we're going to look at just the second of these reasons. It's actually an explanation of the first reason. Why is the persecuted's reward in heaven great? because so also were the prophets persecuted before them. In other words, the basis for the reward is found here in the second reason. The persecuted receive the reward because they find themselves in the company of the prophets. So why should we rejoice when we're persecuted? Well, because when we're persecuted, we join the company of the prophets who came before us. And because of this, we should understand that we will enter into heaven with them. Does the church as a whole really expect persecution today? Do Christians in our society embrace the idea that discipleship includes rejection and suffering? Or do Christians as a whole tend to choose to ignore verses like the ones that we're seeing here? It's hard to think that many Christians today actually embrace, I think, what Jesus is saying in this passage. 
I think the general expectation for the church hasn't shifted too much from the Jews' expectation in their day, meaning I think many Christians think that acceptance, popularity, and ease are signs of success. I mean, megachurches are praised within our denominations and lifted up as examples of how to do church right rather than being questioned. It's generally assumed amongst Christians that if the church is, is big and influential, then it's a sure sign that they're doing something right. Further, the expectation by the church is that the culture around us should embrace Christian values, uh, even by canonizing our values through the democratic process and popular vote. Christians read about polls heralding the decline of Christianity through church attendance and other figures. We see laws passed that contradict Christian values, and what is the general reaction of the church? It's shock, even outrage. When we're met with opposition, you hear calls within the church to adopt new agendas and to implement new strategies, all with the mindset that our unpopularity as Christians in society has something to do with our presentation. The content we assume is fine. We have a good product that we're selling, so to speak, but the packaging's all wrong. It's believed that society will just stampede into the church if we present our message in just the right way. But is this what we should really expect? Is acceptance, popularity, and success the mark of righteousness? According to this verse, Jesus says no. Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the socially accepted. He doesn't say, blessed are the loved. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he explains this statement by pointing out that the people of God have never been marked by popularity. Actually, it's quite the opposite. In fact, what history proclaims is that the righteous have always been greeted with persecution. This is because the world, and by the world I'm referring to that fallen mass of humanity that dominates this planet, the world hates God, and it's always hated God. It's seen God and rejected Him. It's His enemy. Therefore, the world has always and always will hate those who have come into conformity with God and His character. God's commands aren't arbitrary, right? They're a reflection of God Himself. When the righteous therefore obey God's commands, and I mean truly, genuinely obey them, not the mere shadow of them found in legalistic hypocrisy, but when they truly and genuinely obey these commands, then the mere testimony of their lives declares the glory of God to the sinful world. And this does two things. First, as their lives conform to God, then their lives proclaim the excellency of God in their righteousness, which, of course, again, the world despises. In other words, you see something of the love of God, right, in Christian marriage, for example. Because according to Ephesians 5, Christ's relationship with the church parallels a husband's and wife's relationship to one another. And so while there's beauty in this relationship through this mutual deference that occurs in the husband's sacrificial love for his wife and the wife's humble submission to her husband at the same time, it goes against the world's principles. And so they despise it. Thus, the lives of the godly 
not only proclaim the excellency of God, but second, they also expose the sinfulness of the world. They tell the world that all is not right and that they must repent before God. You know, as a race, we tend to comfort one another in our sin. We lower the bar for one another. We say, for instance, you know, I'm I'm not a bad husband. After all, I don't abuse my wife like some people do. I'm not cruel to her, which seems well and good, until someone comes along who actually loves his wife in the same way that Christ loves the church. And then our sin is utterly exposed. The bar has just been raised, and we don't even come close. What does the world do in that situation as their sin is exposed? Now, guys, you don't even have to guess. Think about it. What have you done when you've come across someone who is so obviously more righteous than you? I can tell you what I've done uh, to my shame, even as a Christian. In fact, I remember doing it even as a seminarian. I can think of the man right now. He was a co-worker of mine. What did I do? I got jealous of him, even to the point of anger in my heart. I started pointing out all the holes in him in my mind. I even acted as an obstacle to his plans at times, resisting him simply because I didn't like him. And why was that? What wrong had he done? Nothing. And when I stopped to take assessment of my heart, I could see that. I could see he hadn't done anything wrong. But I didn't like him. And why didn't I like him? It was because the sheer force of his life convicted me. He never even spoken a word to me about my sin because he didn't have to. His life said it all. And I didn't want to change. He threatened me with his righteousness. He showed me that pursuing Christ was going to cost me more than I was willing to give. And so the surest way to prevent change was for me to try to tear him down, if only in my own mind. You see, this is how persecution occurs for the godly. This is why they suffer for righteousness' sake. The testimony of their lives threatens the sinfulness of the world. Even though they never mean harm, the world perceives a threat and it acts to defend the sin that it harbors. And yet at the same time, the world doesn't hate the righteous simply because of the testimony of their lives. Consider, for instance, what Jesus says in the Beatitude just before this one. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. The Beatitudes, just so you understand, are a ladder, uh, meaning the poverty of spirit of verse 3 leads to the mourning of verse 4, which leads to the meekness of verse 5, and so on. Well, in the Beatitude just before this one, we discover that the righteous are peacemakers. They see those engaged in conflict, and they seek to be merciful to them by arbitrating peace. They don't just make peace with their own enemies either, but no, they'll even see two other people at enmity with one another, and they'll seek to minister peace in that situation whatever they can. And biblically speaking, do you understand how they do this? It's not by letting bygones be bygones. It isn't by getting the two sides to simply agree to a ceasefire. That's not peace. A truce is not peace. No, they, they mean to bring about reconciliation. They mean to turn enemies into friends. And friends, guess what this requires? It requires repentance. At some point, one side has wronged the other in their sin. Perhaps both have. 
How do you bring peace then in that situation? It's by getting the offending parties to confess their sin and repent. The only way that peace can be had is if both sides actually lay down their arms and seek to try to love each other again. That's a radical change of heart that requires repentance from sin. In other words, peacemaking occurs in the midst of conflict. The peacemaker sees conflict and they run to it because the only way true peace can be had is through a confrontation of the sin that's involved. This is a a peaceful type of confrontation, surely. It's a confrontation that will admonish you and really encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but it's a confrontation nonetheless. And how are the unrighteous going to respond to that type of confrontation? Are they going to welcome it? Sometimes, certainly, that's the hoped goal, right? Hoped for outcome. But generally speaking, no. Very often they'll reject it. When the righteous proclaim the need for repentance to the unrighteous, we should expect that very often conflict is sure to follow. And that's what peacemakers will tell you. They often experience much conflict and much suffering as they try to bring about reconciliation. These things were certainly true of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, you see it occur in the very first generation of mankind. When Cain killed righteous Abel for no other reason than the fact that Abel's offering exposed the inadequacy of Cain's offering. And the list goes on. Elijah was pursued by Jezebel after standing against the prophets of Baal. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two at the end of his ministry. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned for his prophecies against Judah. Zechariah was murdered in the temple. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace for their refusal to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And Daniel was thrown into the lion's den for continuing to pray to his God. Nehemiah had to survive several assassination attempts in his effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, even John the Baptist, who many consider to be the last Old Testament prophet, as you know, he was beheaded by Herod for denouncing Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife. The writer of Hebrews concludes by saying regarding these Old Testament saints, quote, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I think we often tend to see history as linear, meaning that we're moving from uh, beginning uh, of time to the end of time in sequential fashion. And this is certainly true, right? Time is linear. And yet within the Bible, there emerges a kind of cyclical aspect to history as well. And within this cycle, there's this constant repetition of the righteous proclaiming the need for repentance to the unrighteous and then paying for it through persecution and suffering. They come proclaiming the need for repentance and then they're met with hostility, not acceptance. This is the lot of the people of God while they walk this earth. It's persecution. It's been this way from the beginning. And it's the same for Christ's disciples today. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter would have been a witness to this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Incidentally, he also suffered persecution for the sake of Christ. 
The first time persecution threatened Peter's life, he denied Christ three times. This happened, of course, on the morning of Christ's crucifixion. However, church history tells us that he persevered in the end. And by the end of, the, of his life, he was even crucified upside down in Rome by Emperor Nero. So this is a man who is familiar with persecution. And in 1 Peter, Peter addresses the persecution that the churches in Asia are enduring at the hands of their government, their masters, their spouses, even their former friends. And what we see here in 1 Peter 4 is that even the mere testimony of Christians in their godly living will be enough for the world to persecute them. Look here, 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, With respect to this, they're surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living in the dead. This is what happens even today for Christ's disciples. As they turn away from their sinful lives, the righteousness of their very lives serves as a cause for derision in unbelieving eyes, and they'll be disparaged for it. As we pursue Christ, this is apart from even gospel proclamation, just simply as we pursue Christ individually in our own lives, persecution is bound to happen because of the way our righteous lives expose the sin of those around us. And beyond this, Peter notes that we will also suffer, not just for our righteousness, not just for the conduct of our lives, but also for the root of that righteousness, which is our faith and identification with Christ. Look at 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here we see Peter knows that we suffer as a Christian. And for the name of Christ, this is inevitable too this type of suffering, because the gospel in which we believe proclaims God's judgment against sin as well as His redemption from it. And for those who don't want to know God, in the end, that means it really only proclaims condemnation and judgment. It's only bad news in their eyes. So it's inevitable that as we believe and even proclaim this gospel as ambassadors of Christ, urging people to make peace with God, that we'll be treated in the same way that the prophets were treated when they urged Israel to repent. This is normal. This is expected. Which is why Peter tells his readers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. This is what should happen to the righteous, and it's what will happen. I want you to note here, by the way, this doesn't mean that we're blessed if we're persecuted for sinfulness or if we're not peaceable in the way we proclaim Christ. Look what Peter says, uh, verse 15. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I think the sad fact of the matter is that Christians are often insulted and mocked because they are sinful. Sadly, much of the time, the, the charges of bigot or hypocrite or legalist 
or unfaithful. They're not slanderous accusations. They're true. And in these instances, such persecution is warranted, and we're not blessed for that type of suffering. Along these same lines, we're not blessed when people when we provoke this type of persecution. I don't know if you've noticed, but some almost go out of their way looking, it seems, for persecution. Uh, proclaiming Christ in such a way that doesn't emulate peace, but only wrath. And this isn't humility, it's pride. It's not peacemaking, it's contentiousness. It's not faithfulness, it's rebellion and sin. Even in the way that we proclaim Christ, our attitude needs to be that of Paul, as he told the Corinthians, therefore, as ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are peacemakers, and we desire to live in peace, and we seek it out. Further, when we proclaim the gospel, we do so as one making an appeal to be reconciled to God. So we shouldn't be obnoxious, necessarily, in the way that we do this. And yet, at the same time, even when we do it right, Persecution will come. And when it comes, we are blessed, Jesus says. If you want to turn back to Matthew chapter 5, I think we can see in this passage that there's little doubt that persecution will happen, that it should happen. If you note here, Jesus doesn't even say, Blessed are you if others revile you and persecute you. Rather, he says, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. The implication is that this is going to happen. It may not happen all the time, but it will happen. The sentiment is echoed in the rest of the New Testament as well. Paul tells the Philippians, as he writes from prison, Philippians 1, 29-30, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And he writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, and as he nears his own martyrdom and death, he says, 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote regarding Christians, he said this, Though they never be so meek, merciful, pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from sufferings. They must hang their harp on the willows and take the cross. The way to heaven is by way of thorns and blood. Set it down as a maxim. If you follow Christ, you must see the swords and staves. Persecution will come to the righteous because the world hates God. It hates His righteousness. It hates Christ's message of redemption. And it therefore also hates those who love God, who emulate His righteousness and proclaim the gospel of salvation. Jesus says regarding His own righteous life in John 3, 19-21, He says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus exposed the darkness of the sinful world around him, both through his life and through his words. And the world responded by hating him because it did not want its deeds to be exposed. We should expect nothing less for Jesus' disciples. 
As Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 21, He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So why should we rejoice over persecution? We rejoice in persecution because it's the fruit of the other Beatitudes. As we suffer persecution for righteousness sake, it becomes evident that we'll also experience the blessings of all the other Beatitudes that come before this one. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, the degree to which, uh, I'm sorry, to the degree that a person fulfills the first seven Beatitudes, they may experience the eighth. Or as D.A. Carson says, the reward for being persecuted because of righteousness is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this beatitude serves as a test for all the other beatitudes. This final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of all of them and binds up the rest. For if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may be fairly asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. If there is not righteousness, no conformity to God's will, how shall he enter the kingdom? We rejoice in persecution also because it is the mark of true righteousness. It is the fruit of genuine faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sure you're familiar, is a, a man who knew suffering himself, said, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means passio passiva, suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. In one of the memoranda drawn up in the preparation of the Augsburg Confession, similarly defines the church as a community of those, quote, who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and token of grace. Why do we rejoice in persecution? We rejoice because persecution is also the fruit of Christ-likeness. When we are Christ-like in all ways, then we will suffer as He suffered. It is the outcome of our Christ-likeness, right? Matthew 10, 24 and 25. Again, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household. As we become like Christ, we will suffer. And so we rejoice in persecution because it means there's some conformity to Christ taking place here. In fact, persecution isn't just the fruit of Christ's likeness, it's also a mark of Christ's likeness. Meaning it's something that Jesus himself experienced. And so when we experience suffering, we get to be like him. Jesus suffered unjustly. And bore up under it in righteousness. We look like Christ when we're persecuted. And we cannot ever be fully Christ-like without being persecuted. To be Christ-like is to be persecuted. Persecution, therefore, really is the mark of the true church. Where you find the church, therefore, you will find persecution. And when there, where there is no persecution, for righteousness' sake, there's no church. 
Lack of persecution isn't a sign of someone's maturity and success in Christ. It's a sign of their immaturity and their failure to obey Christ's commands. The American missionary Jim Elliott bemoaned this lack of maturity in the modern American church when he wrote this. I love this quote. Probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, but he says, uh, We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace. Well, we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. But we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and power, uh, powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men. But brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in this comradeship of the cross. He says we are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit and leave, leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. If we would look around at the church and we find in the process that the church or that the world does not hate us, but even loves us, that's not necessarily a good thing. The fact of the matter is that the church as a whole, I think you can say today, is generally not persecuted by the world, at least not the American church. Sadly, this is as much a witness to the church's failure to be sanctified as anything else. It's a witness to the church's impiety. There's no legitimate distinction between the church and the world because the church has not pursued obedience, thinking that faith is merely giving assent to the facts concerning Jesus without actually submitting one's life to Him. There's not the mark of Christ in us. And so the world doesn't persecute us. There's nothing in its eyes worth persecuting. Again, in the words of Jim Elliot, the world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. We should expect persecution. We should even rejoice over it because of what it represents. It is the mark of true righteousness. I think if we really understand this concept, then it means that we should probably change our expectations for how the world interacts with the church. You see, when we read about declining church attendance, it's not necessarily a reason to panic. When the government even begins to make attempts to regulate the church's worship, it's not a reason for panic. When family and friends are mad at you, not for any evil that you've done, but simply because of your stance for Christ, it's not a reason to panic. Don't get me wrong, if everyone around us hates us, there's probably room to do some self-examination, right? And to see if we're being hated because we are, in fact, loathsome in our sin. But if in the end we discover that we're pursuing righteousness, and that's the only reason why we're hated, then understand that everything is actually on course. In the words of John Stott, we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it does not. And so when the government begins to overreach and tell the church how it is to worship, as it even labels the church as non-essential and threatens to punish it in some way if it doesn't conform to its mandated prescriptions for worship, what should we think? How should we respond? Jesus tells us right here. The right response isn't anger or fear or even surprise. Instead, we embrace the ensuing persecution as a mark of Christ's likeness 
and as the inevitable fruit of true righteousness. We even rejoice over it, knowing that in the same way Christ and the prophets were persecuted before us. Let's pray.